But in John chapter 4, we see the life of Christ and we see it. Uh, we see him loving and pursuing souls. And this is the heartbeat of Jesus. To, to say you're a follower of Christ and, and you don't seek to reach people with the gospel would, would mean that you're really not really following Christ because uh, that's what Jesus did. That's his heartbeat you constantly see. And as it begins to open up in John chapter 4, I want us to see in verse 3, and I'm going to kind of give us maybe a little bit lengthier of an introduction as we, walk, as we kind of open up into this passage. But, but let me do a walking commentary as we look at this passage. John 4 verse 3, it says, and he, and he, this is Jesus, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Well, actually, no, he didn't. In one sense, I mean, practically speaking, he didn't have to go through Samaria. Actually, the Jewish people would often avoid Samaria like the plague, and they would, they would, they would go and cross the Jordan River twice. It was a much more difficult route, an even more dangerous route, but they would do that on purpose to avoid Samaria. You didn't do that. You didn't go there. Or you go the coastal route, which again, lengthier and, and, and way around in a sense. But, but it tells us here that he needed to go through Samaria, which shows you this is the very plan of God. This is no mistake of what Jesus is doing. He's clearly following the Lord. Uh, this is a long journey. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But notice verse 5. It says, he cometh, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, if you're talking about the sixth hour, Jewish time, uh, what time would that be? Do you remember? Yeah, right at noon, if it's Jewish time. Now, if it's not Jewish time, if it's, if it's more Greek time, if it's, you know, then, then you're talking about six in the evening, okay? Um, actually, there are really good expositors, Bible teachers, that differ on this. Uh, there are many times I, I've gone back and forth through this as I've kind of done a study, and, and was it noon? Was it six in the evening? And I'll t I'm going to give you a little hint, okay? Here we go, ready? <clears throat> it doesn't really matter, okay? Okay, just so you know at this point. But it is significant. I tend to say I think it's noon. And so I look at this, and so he's, if it's noon, this is a long journey, early in the morning, working their way to this point where now they, here they are at noon, and I would say that noon being then the heat of the day, there cometh a woman of Samaria, verse 7, to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. He's just simply asking for a drink of water. I mean, Jesus is thirsty. He's going to use the, the water. He's going to use the illustration. And when you see Jesus witnessing, I tell people, hey, think about this for a minute. It's like he doesn't start off and, and his, in his first words, you know, he knocks on the door and say, if you died today, would you go to hell, you know, or whatever. Are you going to go to heaven? And, and, and like, you know, you know, sometimes we have these gospel bombs that we throw at people, you know, we, these grenades, you know, catch this, you know, as, as you know, do you, do you realize if you died right now, you'd go to hell? Well, you've never even met the person. I, I mean, maybe they would, but maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they're in Christ, you know. And so here's Jesus using illustration of around, which kind of helps us to maybe start in a normal or natural realm and go from that normal, natural realm into a spiritual realm. And you kind of watch this. I would encourage that in evangelism to be observant. But yet here's Jesus going to use this idea of even the well and the water uh, as a way of the gospel. But notice this. He asked for a drink. Then verse 8 says this. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. They went to go get some food. Now, I want you to put that in the back of your mind. We'll, 
I want you to think about that for a minute, especially as we work through this, this story. Verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? I mean, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And many of you remember, I mean, the truth is they, they were supposed to come in and conquer and, and take over the land. And the, the reality is, is God was spewing the others, in a sense, out of the land. And God was using the children of Israel. And yet they weren't supposed to intermarry with the pagans. And at some point, historically, they did, which brought now this race that wasn't fully Jewish. It was, it was a mixed race. Um, actually, as you consider this, you could call them maybe in their, in their mindset or world of a mixed breed or half-breeds. They weren't fully Jewish. The Jewish, strict Jewish people looked at the Samaritans and detested them. They're so unclean, and there's no way God could ever bless you. But could you imagine growing up a Samaritan? I mean, you were born a Samaritan. Like, how am I supposed to change that, you know? And, and so they, the Jews, in a sense, hated and despised the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in turn, hated and despised the Jews. This is a major rift, and she is shocked by this. You know, how is it that you, this Jew, are asking drink of me? I mean, this is... And now how in the world would she know he's a Jew? Well, he dressed like a Jew. Uh, he would have had his tassels, and he would have looked like a Jewish rabbi. And so she knows and sees this. And, and again, she's speaking to this rabbi, but she's shocked because he's talking to her. And then, again, within this, verse 10, Jesus answered, and he said unto her, he said, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. If you, if you only knew who I was, you actually would be asking me for living water. Now, again, she doesn't kind of get this. Are you noticing how he moves it, though, from the natural to the spiritual? It's like this perfect, you know, he's like, he's saying the gift of God, this living water. And again, she doesn't understand. Though, actually, the woman, verse 11, it says, And the woman said to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? I mean, where's your bucket? I mean, where's your jar? I mean, how, how are you going to get this living water? And then she's sarcastic with Messiah. I mean, could you imagine that she has no clue who she's talking to? But here's, here's creator God in human flesh, Messiah, right in front of her. And she said, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, and, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? I mean, are you going to somehow dig a new well like Jacob did or something? I mean, you're like... I think, oh no, you don't know who you're talking to. And yes, he is greater than Jake. Oh no, you know, it's kind of, but Jesus does not rebuke her. In this, you just see the very love of Christ for this soul. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He's using this illustration. If you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. But notice this. Verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I mean, he's talking about something so different and so much deeper than this well, so much more satisfying to the point of genuine everlasting life, this, you could say, eternal life. And yet, verse 15, the woman is still kind of shocked by this. But at this point, she's, not, she's gone from being, you know, like, who are you talking to me to becoming inquisitive to be now actually desirous of even this. And you're watching a heart shift and change right there in front of us. And it says, and the woman said unto him, sir, Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. 
Now again, she has gone between a mile and two miles round trip. That's, that's how far this is going to be. This is significant. I mean, I won't have to go there again and the, 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 the bucket being heavy. I mean, all the practical things that as she's even thinking about and not really understanding, but Jesus moves it even further. Verse 16, he said unto her, well, go call thy husband and come hither. Go get your husband and bring him here. Now, this is masterful. Now, at this point, can I tell you, in evangelism, Jesus is doing something that you and I can't do. Uh, he knows her, and in a sense, they've never met. And so, go get your husband and bring him here. And the woman answered now in, I believe, shock uh, and insecurity, um, I have no husband. And as she says this, Jesus responds and says unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that sayest thou truly, I guess you spoke some truth. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, at this point, are you seeing what's happening? She is coming before the very moral law of God as she realizes she has definitely broken God's law. She's, she, at this point, feels guilty. She's speaking to a Jewish rabbi. I mean, everything about this, here's a religious person, and he's, he somehow knows about her life. And then you think about her life, five failed marriages, I mean, to, to think about one failed marriage, is maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's you or someone you, you know well, and, and they've had a failed marriage, and how hurtful and how awful that would be. And let's say you give it two years and another marriage, and yet it fails, and then another one, and then it fails, and then another one, and it fails, and then another one, and it fails. I mean, I mean even if it's two years in between each one of this, this is ten years of significant hurt. I mean, she's a hurting woman. And yet in all of this, she's, she's seeking for some genuine satisfaction, and yet the commitment doesn't even seem to work. Forget that. So she, now she's just shacking up. She's just living in open adultery. This is, this is culturally at that time would have been, would have been just something you, a taboo. You, no, you know, even culturally. And yet biblically we know this is not right. This is against God's laws. It's moral laws. You don't commit adultery. But here she is, and Jesus has exposed this in her. You, you notice he didn't say, woman, you know what you are. You don't see that. You see the loving Christ. After her soul, she needs to be rescued. Actually, again, I, I think if some, I've even heard you know, someone in the past even preach this is almost like the woman's trying to lure Jesus, almost like that, you know, and, and I'm going, not if you read the passage here. I mean, she's, she keeps being shocked. Everything is shocking to her. And yet a Jewish rabbi, is she trying to lure him? No, it just doesn't make any sense. It just, it just seems as you watch her, she keeps being kind of shocked by Jesus. And, and then as this happens, the woman responds in verse 19. She says unto him, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And I'm kind of like, well, yes. I mean, he is the prophet of prophets. That's who he is. And I perceive that, you, that you're a prophet. Well, you perceive correctly. <laughs> Verse 20, though, she, she says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, 
Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, uh, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. That is true. Follow the biblical line and and it's clear Messiah would come through the Jewish line. That's Messiah. And, and as he says this, he then continues on teaching her, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And at this point, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. This is an amazing thing that's going on here. And I think about this, and I would say, I I remember being on a plane flight from Detroit, Michigan to Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I told you I'm from Greenville. That's my hometown, Simpsonville, Greenville area there. And so I'm flying back. I sit beside this guy on a plane, and the guy was in the military. And uh, we were right around the same age, and um, I thanked him for serving our country, and and then as he was talking about that, he had had further education. And so we kind of were talking about that a little bit. The more he talked, though, it was clear this guy did not know Christ, okay? I mean, just the way he talked and his worldview of everything, he just, I just, it was clear that he didn't know Christ. But he talked for probably a good 30 minutes, maybe, maybe even longer. And then at that point, he kind of finishes talking, and I'm asking all these questions. And then he looks at me and says, so, Jeremy, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, um, I'm what's called an evangelist. I, I would be someone who focuses in on the gospel, maybe like a traveling uh, pastor, a traveling preacher, uh, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And at that point, he rolls his eyes right in front of me and goes, ah. And then he says this, out of all places I can sit on a plane, I sit beside a preacher, you know. I actually didn't take offense by that. I kind of laughed with him a little bit too. And then he began to say some things before I was able to even kind of respond. He said, now I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but do you know you can't trust the Bible, don't you? I mean, you know it was written by man, and, and, you, and, and, and man has all kinds of failures and messes up and stuff. And you, you can't trust that. It's got all kinds of errors and stuff like that in it. And, and I couldn't even, he didn't even let me respond. And then he said, and, and for instance, I mean, you know, Jesus, he never claimed to be the Messiah. I mean, other people thought he made the claim, but you know, you know he never made the claim, don't you? Now, I know you're the preacher, and I know that, you know, but I, I hate to kind of burst your bubble. That's the way, and, and so I just kind of hear all this. I said, oh, that's interesting. Hold on a second. So I pulled out uh, a, the Bible, and I opened it up, and I began to, to take him to this passage. We walked through it. I gave him a little running commentary, kind of like I did with you. And, and then as I came down to verse 25, I get to that point and say, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. And so I asked him, do you mind reading verse 26 for me? He said, yeah, that's no problem. And then he reads out loud. He says this, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And then he does this. And he looks at me and he said, well, I guess he did make the claim. I said, yes, he did. (laughs) I said, not only that, I said, if you know Greek, I mean, he uses the phrase ego a me. I mean, the idea is the I am. I mean, this is clear. Jesus is claiming Jehovah God in human flesh. This is, this is it. But that's not really my message. Sorry, you guys. That was my introduction. You guys are freaking out. Okay, here we go. But watch this. Verse 27. And upon this, here's the text. 
And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and saith unto the men, Hey, come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is, is not this the Christ? I mean, then they went out of the city, in verse 30, and they came unto him. And in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any, hath any man brought it, uh, him aught to eat? And Jesus, then he said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. And then he says, Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Actually, if you were to label the message, maybe I would call it white unto harvest, or maybe I would even call it, Do we really get it? I want to pray, and I want to give you a message. I would say, in one sense, if you're thinking about homiletics or the way I would give it or present it, it's going to be a little awkward, okay, the way the message is. But it should be simple and easy to follow. So let's pray that God would stir our hearts, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel in transforming hearts and lives. And God, if there is anyone in this room without Christ, please, I ask, would you bring them to genuine, uh, genuine saving knowledge of Christ that they would be converted or born again. I actually pray, too, Lord, that you would stir every believer's heart, that you would stir our hearts, that we would look to you and see what you did in evangelism and that you would stir our hearts towards the lost all around us. God, in our world today, uh, what an opportunity for the sake of the gospel. And so I ask, God, would you help us to have a mindset like Jesus Christ? Lord, change us to be more like Christ as believers. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. If you notice this passage, it's amazing. I would start off with simply even saying it this way with a, with a point. Point number one is this, they didn't get it. Now, I think you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the disciples, and that's just simply point number one. They didn't get it. And as you look at this, it's amazing the very timing of the disciples as they have gone to the city to get food, and they've come back at the right time. Notice verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. I mean, they're amazed at this. Again, consider the timing of this. If they would have come back any sooner in the conversation, now it's Jesus with the 12, so 13 men and the woman. I mean, do you think the woman's going to be open at all about her spiritual life? I'd say no. I think it's going to shut down very fast because of all these people. But notice, here's Jesus there. And yet if they come too late, they won't see him talking to her and maybe even catch what he says as he even says that I that speak unto you am he. So they, they're coming up at the right time, which just simply tells you this. God is sovereign. He orchestrates events and people and situations. And it's an amazing thing how he does this. Because as this woman needs Christ, not only that, you see the disciples that need to learn a lesson for sure. They need to learn some things. And yet just the perfect timing of this, and so we realize, again, God doesn't make mistakes. God is never in heaven, and he, he, he never says, oops. <laughs> he, he doesn't have to do that ever. 
He knows exactly what he's doing. And even with the, the, the sinfulness of mankind and the culture and the brokenness of even our own world, the truth is God can even orchestrate that for his glory and for our good. It's amazing with all of this. God doesn't make mistakes. And I know you might say this so often. Man, I sure wouldn't do it that way. But I'm sure glad you're not God. Which tells, tells us that that our thoughts and his thoughts are definitely different and his thoughts and plans are always best. That's hard sometimes to swallow, isn't it? But you look at this, upon this came his disciples and they marveled. They are, they are amazed that he is talking to this woman and, it, and even John tells you what they're thinking because John says, they say to, to one what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? They're, they're thinking this, yet no man said this, but that's what they're thinking. I mean, what is he doing? Doesn't he, doesn't he understand his testimony here? Um, in that culture at that time, a man speaking to a woman in public was taboo. You didn't do it. Um, which is so interesting because in our culture, it's not that way at all. Is it? I mean, we say, hi, how are you doing? You know, give each other hugs, maybe a high five, shake hands, whatever. You know, we're, we have conversations, you know, now with, you know, COVID, we, we elbow or something like that. I don't know, but we, you know, we have these conversations with one another. That's normal within the culture, you know. But yet in this culture at this time, again, a man speaking to a woman in public was taboo. You didn't do it. It could look like some form of prostitution. I mean, that, that would be really, really bad. Actually, even a man speaking to his own wife in public, he was careful even doing that in the culture, which, again, is so awkward because we don't understand that with our culture, but that was the culture. So they are marveling, and they're like amazed. What is he doing? I can't believe this, that he's doing this, but aren't you thankful that Jesus is not bound by culture? And as you look at this, it's, it, to me, it just is a, a great reminder of this, and then you can imagine. I mean, you know, are you going to rebuke him? No, because I mean, the moment you rebuke Rabbi or not Rabbi, but Messiah, you realize you're the one that needs rebuking at that point. I mean, remember even Peter. You know, don't talk about going to the cross like that. What are you saying? You know, and uh, and 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 is he? And he Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, you're trying to cause me literally to sin. And so it's, oh, you know, like, I mean, the tr you don't teach the rabbi. Jesus has nothing to learn from you. I know that bursts your bubble. God has nothing to learn from you or me. But we have everything to learn from him. And so when you look at this, you see they're, them thinking this in verse 27, then verse 28, then the woman, she then left her water pot and went her way into the city. Now, again, that's just a shocker. Excuse me? She did what? I mean, she just made her way uh, about a, a mile and then two miles, maybe round trip. This is significant. And why not an earlier well? There were wells closer. And, and why not is she with all these other women? I mean, especially at this timing, you know, because that's what they would normally do. They would do it as a fellowship opportunity, you could say, and they would go together to draw the water. But no, she's alone. And it seems to be, again, the heat of the day. I mean, this is significant which shows you that in her own society, what is she? She's an outcast. And so here she is, and yet she goes back to her city, and she says to the men of the city, these people of the city there, she says, she says which told me all things. She says, come see this man, which told me all things I mean, that ever I did. I mean, he told me all these things that I did. I mean, 
could this be the Christ, she's asking. I mean, is not this the Christ with a question mark? If she would have said and came back and said, man, everyone, you will not believe who I met today. I met the Messiah. Woo! You know, you know actually they would all went, okay, woman, you are wacko. You're a kind of crazy woman. But she didn't say it that way. She said, he told me all these things that ever I did. Could it be? So now they're inquisitive. Interestingly enough, as, this, as the story is going on, you, you see this going back and forth between this, again, masterfully done, obviously under the, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Verse 30, then they went out of the city and they came into him. So that's going to happen, but it's going to take some time. So what happens? In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. And I kind of want to do this. I kind of want to go like, 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 good job. I mean, because they're, they're saying, why are they saying, Jesus, you need to eat something? Because they've eaten something. Remember, they, they travel this distance, and this distance is significant. Actually, the distance they traveled, if it was morning or it was afternoon, they made it in the evening, the, the whole point is the distance would be between some 15 to 20 miles. You know how they traveled normally? On foot. So if you've got to drive 10 minutes to go to church, better praise the Lord. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's awesome because compared to walking that, whoa. That means early in the morning, that means they would have made their way. This would have taken three, four hours. I mean, it is a significant amount of time depending on the, the, the dis, again, the speed that they were going. But, but the truth is, is they, they are hungry. They are thirsty. Jesus is, is fully human. I mean, he's, he's holy God and holy man. I mean, he's just, he's, so here he is. And all of this, I mean, you're going, here, he's hungry. He's thirsty. Jesus, you need to eat. They've eaten. But he said unto them in verse 32, he said, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. This is puzzling. Um, Therefore the, said the disciples one to another, verse 33, hath any man brought him out to eat? I mean, this is kind of weird. Uh, uh, John, did you bring him any food? Uh, John's like, I, I didn't bring him any food. Peter, did you, did you bring him any food? Peter's like, I didn't bring him any food. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, did you bring him any food? I think he probably said, I doubt it. <laughs> I don't know. I just, that's my own joke. Um, the idea is really, they are kind of, they really are shocked. I mean, who brought him something to eat? And then Jesus says something that if you're not careful, you'll actually miss this. This is one of the, one of the golden nuggets right here. I mean, this is, this is an amazing truth. Watch what he says. In verse 34, he said, Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, what does that mean? My, my greatest desire, that even more than food to live by, is to do the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? God the Father. He longs to do God's will. That's what drives him. He, he, he is driven by this. Now we see this. Actually, you can turn a page over probably in the scriptures and you see in chapter 6 in verse 38 that Jesus is, is talking about this. He says in verse 38 of, of chapter 6, he says, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. What does it mean he came down from heaven? He pre-existed. 
This is the pre-existent one. He's the eternal son of God. He wasn't created. You know that, don't you? And when you think about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we call that the Trinity. The, the reality is, is before time began, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed. Did you, did you know that? Consider this, in perfect unity and in perfect harmony and perfect love. Actually, when you consider something like a Muslim race and you think about, you know, not Muhammad, but you think about, you know, uh, Allah, Allah in their world is not, is not Trinity. And, and Allah needs people to worship him. Actually, Trinity does not. Because when you think about Trinity, there's perfect love and unity and joy within the Trinity before people ever existed. And yet, because of his love and his kindness, what does he do? He, he, they, long, they long to share the, the, the kindness and the goodness, which again just shows you what a different uh, true God versus the false God, Allah. But this is just, you look at this, he, he pre-exists, he comes down from heaven, but wait, not for his will, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. As I think about later, you further, even in the, even in the scriptures where he's now in the garden and, and he's praying, he's, he's to the point, he, he knows what's going to happen. I mean, everything's set up for this and it's not a mistake to him, it's the whole plan of God. And as he's praying, Lord, remember he prays, Lord, if it be so, even let this, this cup pass from me. But, but then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He submits again to the very will of God, knowing the very wrath of God he will bear uh, for the sake of mankind. So you look at this and you think about, and you go, this is, this is amazing. And you go back to John 4, and I would ask this when he says, my mean is to do the will of him that sent me. He then just says this, he's, not, he's driven by the will of God. And I would ask you this as a believer, or even if you're an unbeliever, I would ask, what drives you? Like, like, and I don't mean, you know, my truck, you know, I mean, like what motivates you in life? What gets you up in the morning? What, what encourages you throughout the day? What drives you? I, I hope you wouldn't say, well, money, you know, or, you know, I, I want pleasure or whatever it may be. The truth is, you know, it should be the will of God. And not just doing God's will, but doing God's work. Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What is the work that he came to finish? And I think you can see, even in John 17, if you just kind of flip over, you see this just kind of quickly here. But John chapter 17, watch what he says. In John 17 and verse 4, High priestly prayer, Jesus says this, I have glorified thee on the earth, speaking to God and, his, his, and what he has done. And then he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What, what is he talking about? I mean, he's, he's ready to die on the cross. It's just, it's going to happen very, very soon. And then you got the point of the whole crucifixion and those things that happen. And then chapter 19, you have in verse 28, after this, again, now Jesus is hanging on a cross. And it says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
Now there was a vessel full of vinegar and, and they filled the sponge with vinegar and put, up, put it upon hyssop and put it up to his mouth, so this leafy branch, and they bring it up to his mouth. And then verse 30, then Jesus, therefore having received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. What does this mean? It's paid in full. It's done. The very work is done. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Um, what is the work? I think it's speaking in John chapter 4 and verse 34. I really believe it's the very redemptive work of the cross. That's God's word. I mean, you look at this and say, what should drive you? God's will. But what else should you be driven by is doing God's work. I mean, why are you here on the earth? Do you think it's just a you can kind of have your little good life, sort of, and, and just kind of live for self? And yet, no, life is all about God, and, and our focus should be on Him and His desires and His will and His work. But I would say this, at this point, you could say this, the disciples had only one thing really on their mind. And that was to get something to eat. With souls ready to be saved, they didn't get it. They lost the the big picture in light of the moment. Now again, if I were to ask you, is it wrong to eat something? No. I like as my own little kids, you know, when they were littler, one of them wasn't eating something. And the brother looked at them and said, if you don't eat, you will die. You know, and that is true. But life is not all about food either. And yet he's saying, my greatest desire more than even food to live by is to do the very will of God and his work. And this should be what drives us. And if it's not, we should humble ourselves and say, dear God, forgive me and cleanse me because I should be about your work and I should be about your will. We should long to do it each day. What does God have of you? What does God want for you to do and to even accomplish even this very day? And we should be so driven to do his will and to be a part of his work. But actually, you could say this, the disciples didn't get it. But here's what I love. If you hang out with Jesus, he will help you get it. Because he's kind. Number one, he didn't get it. Number two, we'll go faster. Verse 35, I would say this. Number two, not only did they did not get it, but number two, they did not see it. In verse 32, or verse 35, we see this. It says this. He says, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. That was something they would say. They would encourage themselves as they worked in the fields and hey four months and then cometh harvest okay actually some would might even say this might have even been a jingle in their own culture that they would say four months then comes harvest four months then comes harvest when I think about that I think about uh, a couple of summers ago I was up in Wisconsin and uh, and across from the church this country kind of church looking there was this field of, of corn and and they would say they had this saying they'd say they'd say knee high by the fourth of July and it was kind of the idea of what size the corn would be and whether it would be by the 4th of July, whatever it was, or their crops. And, and so in one sense, this may be a, kind of a very cultural saying in verse 35. I mean, you have this saying, he says, say ye not. I mean, there are yet four months and then come of the harvest. But behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now, if you're with Jesus, 
and he says, you know, you got this saying, four months then comes harvest, but I'm telling you, man, hey, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. At that moment, what do you think you would do? I think you'd probably lift up your eyes, and I think you'd look over at the fields, okay? Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white already to harvest. Now, you also don't need to be in agriculture to actually figure this out, okay? Um, but it would start off, the wheat would be very, you know, little, small and greenish, and it would work its way up into a golden brown, and then you've got the puffiness of that. When it got really ready, they would call it white into harvest, and so at a distance, it's like it could look kind of like a, a much more white-looking look, and it was the idea, it's ready to be harvested, okay? <clears throat> can, I, can I tell you, tell us this plainly? We know Jesus was not saying, hey, everybody, you got to go get some wheat. Woo! <laughs> No, he wasn't encouraging them to get wheat. He says, you have this saying, four months then comes harvest. But I'm telling you, lift up your eyes. Look over there at the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. And at that moment, remember what's happening within this true story. You have the Samaritans who have heard from this lady about this possible Messiah. And at the very seemingly moment, they're making their way through the fields bobbing up and down. What's kind of crazy to think about this even too, it, within the traditional garb of a Samaritan would have had a white head covering. And I would simply say this, whether a white head covering or not, the whole point is Jesus is not talking about the wheat. He's given them a visual understanding and teaching to say, guys, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. For they're actually white array to harvest. And they're going, now the wait a second, what's even more interesting is this. The culture at that time, I mean, looking at the fields, John is, a, is an amazing book in this way. John, they keep going to the different feasts and coming back, and, and so you, have, you can actually find out the timing of this with the season of this because of how they visit and go to these different feasts, okay? And the reality is this, when he would have said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields or white at a harvest, they would have lifted up and looked over there initially and went, no, they're not. I mean, they're like a greenish color. It's like early in the season. They're like, what, what is he talking about? And, but at that moment, could you imagine how the light bulb turns on? And they're thinking, you know, what is he? Oh, I see it. The Samaritans. What a visual picture. I mean, you look at this, and it's like, the truth is, is so often we as Christians, we just, we don't see it, do we? I mean, we've got people all around us who are lost. I mean, some may be, how many of you actually have maybe an immediate family member who, who, who's not saved? Does anyone have that? I mean, I, I do. I think of all of my kids have, have made some form of profession, I, I, you know, and I'm thankful for that, although I always pray, you never know, but yet my, young, my daughter, she's, she's, she's not, she knows she's not saved. I, we pray for her. We, we plead with her. But, but the truth is, is, and she'll raise her hand for things, saying that she knows she's not, she just doesn't seem to be ready to, to humble herself. I mean, very proud, I guess you could say there, to, to really get, and we pray, we plead, God, please save her soul. How many of you have family members, though, that are extended? In other words, aunts, uncles, maybe cousins or uh, grandparents, things like people like that, maybe around you that, you that you would love that you know don't know Christ. Anyone have some relatives like that? Yeah. Uh, do you have any friends uh, that don't know Christ? Is there any neighbors that live around in your community? Do, do you even know your neighbors? 
I mean, we, you could begin to consider this and think, and, and in one sense, they're all around us, and in one sense, the field is white at harvest, and consider the timing of our culture right now. I mean, people are freaked out, and yet, think about this, okay, so you die of corona in Christ, okay? You're, again, you're not going to say, I sure wish I was back. You're not even thinking that. It doesn't mean that you're... You're stupid and do dumb things, but the truth is, is ultimately it's in God's hands. And we look at a culture and people are freaking out. And again, one, in one sense, rightfully so, if you don't know Christ. And so what an opportunity we have to love our neighbors and to point them to Christ. God began to do this stirring work as I was a uh, got a hold of my life, my junior year of high school, going into my senior year of high school. It was at a Christian camp, many of you have heard of, called the Wilds. And uh, I, God just stirred my heart. I'd be break my heart over just of, of who I was. And, and in one sense, I kind of look at this, I say, I, I really think I was saved when I was younger, but if I wasn't, I know I got saved when I was 17 because there was a radical shift at that point. I mean, I, I realized I want to submit to whatever he wants of me, and I, I look to Christ that way. But at this, as a 17-year-old, I began to read my Bible and spend time with God. I I, I, I remember a friend of mine named Brian. Brian actually said to me, Jeremy, he goes, I, I feel like we never share the gospel. And um, I said, well, you know, I kind of feel the same way. And, we, and I'm, here I am in Greenville, South Carolina. Some people call it like the buckle on the Bible belt. I mean, it's just, and yet we're not sharing the gospel. I mean, we're both feeling convicted. We said, well, let's go do something about it. So, you know, what we decided to do, we decided to go to downtown Greenville. And to just tell people about Jesus. And then we had gospel tracts. And in one sense, probably we had been taught in the past, maybe, but we never listened in the past. You know, so we didn't know anything. We were like green as can be, you know. And, and I remember going to downtown Greenville that day and I literally parking the vehicle. And we're getting ready to go out and talk to people about Jesus. And I was so afraid. I really did this. We're praying. And at some point, even in my own heart, I'm thinking, today I'm going to be a martyr for my faith, you know, because so many people die in Greenville, South Carolina, sharing the gospel, you know. But I was seriously afraid. I remember going out and so nervous. And then there's this big guy comes my way. And I didn't know what to say. I just kind of said, hey, we're telling people about Jesus. Are you interested? I mean, what a great approach. <laughs> you know? And actually, the guy there looked at me and he goes, uh, sure. I, I mean, I like, I like shocked, you know, like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, well, let's uh, sit over here. So there's this park bench, you know. And so we sit down. It's like a Thursday afternoon. Cars driving by, you know. And I'm all nervous. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, yeah, my Bible. And I kind of pull it out. And, and I, had, I had written out in the little piece of paper that, you know, that kind of holds the binding together on the white spot there. I wrote out the Romans road, you know, verses in Romans that point people to Christ. And I began to start, okay, Romans 3.23. Okay, and Romans 3.23. And then I turned to, I was so nervous. I said, can you read it? You know, <laughs> and and he's like, sure. And actually, that's a good thing for, to let them read it. And, um, but sure enough, as he begins to read it, you know, that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, interesting, we start talking about sin and different sins he, even he had done, and yet how we don't, you know, attain to God, and yet we come short and, and what sin is. He seemed to really seem to understand it all. And at that point, I, I went, okay, okay uh, Romans uh, 6, 23. Okay, he reads that. For the wages of sin is death. And at that point, he goes, he stops and he kind of looks at me and goes, well, that's not good. I said, well, it's really not. I said, because it's talking about like eternal separation from God. It's, it's like talking about hell. The payment of our sins is that's what we deserve. 
And as we kind of described even more, it's then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And at that point, I'm asking him about Jesus. Do you know much about Christ? And we're, we're walking through the life of Christ, his, his, his birth, his life, his, 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 you know, his death on the cross, his burial, resurrection from the dead even. You know? and, and as we consider that, it's like then it's like Romans 5a, but God, he commendeth, he demonstrates his love for us. Even though we're sinners, what did he do? He died for us. He's seeing this. And then as he seems to grasp all this, it's like then you take him to Romans 10, you know, in verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. But what does that mean? Verse 9 describes it, you know, as, as you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, literally meaning Jesus is Lord, that you would confess that and you'd, you'd say that. Why? Because you believe that in your heart. And the scripture says, if you do this, you shall be saved. You will be saved. And the guy looked at me and he said, I've never done that, but I need to. I actually kind of didn't know what to do. I kind of, kind of looked at him and I said, well, uh, if God's working in your life, you could cry out to him now. He goes, you mean right here? Right now? So I looked around. He, then he looked down at the Bible and it seemed like a kind of a long pause. And then he said, I need to. And he began to cry out to the Lord. You, you know what's amazing? I really think that guy got saved. You know what's even crazier about that? I remember thinking like that, that whoa, you know, that's the first time we went down. You know, like a, it's one for one. Like that's 100%. <laughs> you know, it must always be like this. <laughs> no, it's not. And, but it's interesting how God was encouraged, I think, my heart. It's like, and then we started going down on a regular basis just to share the gospel. And can I tell you what it does? It, be, it begins to, to work in you. I mean, when you share the gospel as a believer to somebody else, even whether they get saved or not, what does that do for you? You walk away, and there's this great encouragement in your heart and more of a burden in your soul. Dear God, save them if they haven't gotten saved. Or if they got saved, wow, this is amazing. Hey, everybody, let me tell you what happened. And you're all excited about someone who came to Christ. I mean, it fires you up. Consider, in one sense, we call it sometimes like fresh blood within an assembly. Somebody who truly just gets saved. They're a brand new convert. This excitement and joy and newness and freshness. And you look at this, in one sense, the disciples didn't see it. But again, you walk with Jesus and he will help you see it. And the last simple point is that he, he or they, you could say they didn't do it. And as we conclude here, it's simply this, verse 36, and he that, he's, as he says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white already to harvest. And then he says, and he that re reapeth receiveth wages. So there's eternal rewards for what you're going to do. Because it says, and, and he gathereth fruit into life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. There's this joy and rejoicing over anyone who comes to Christ. And, and again, it says in here, and is that saying true, that one soweth and another reapeth. So there's an element how we all work together within the field of, of seeking to, to reach people with the gospel. I, I tell people, listen, I'm not your pastor. I mean, but, but this week I'm co-laboring with you and your pastor and this idea that, that we would seek to reach people. And, and what are we doing? Sometimes we're planting and, and that may be it. That may be God used that week of planting. There are people who heard the gospel for the first time. Maybe there will be people who heard it and it's not the first time. And what are we doing? We're watering. But who's in charge of the increase? It's God. And, and, and I can encourage you this way. And, I, and I'll tell you some truth on my side. <clears throat> I can't save anybody. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Jeremy, you're a loser evangelist, and pastor, why do we bring this guy? You know, whatever. You know. But I would say, neither can you. If you save them, they're in big trouble. No, Jesus saves. But yet, in the midst of this, shouldn't we rejoice with what happens as this is, is, is going on? That's what doesn't make any sense when you hear people. I've heard people say weirdo things like, you know, well, you know, you stole my crown or something like this. And I'm like, what are you, what, what are you talking about? I mean, if someone witnesses to a cousin of mine and he gets saved, I don't say, well, listen, I've been working on that guy forever, and look what you did. No, are you kidding me? We rejoice because we all labor for the same gospel and for the same purpose, and God, or Jesus, you could say, is the Savior. So this is just great encouragement. And then he says something in verse 38 that's pretty scathing, actually. It's pretty hard to take. It's pretty hard to swallow if you're the disciples. Because he's saying, here's that saying, one soweth and another reapeth. And I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you're entered into their labors. He's saying, could you imagine this to these guys? Guys, I'm getting ready to send you and you're, you're going to reap and you've actually put forth no work. Other people have. Now, you kind of say, well, who? I mean, obviously, but wait a second, because the woman said, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. So obviously somebody had to, in some form, labor in that sense. Actually, Jesus did. I mean, when the disciples were like, oh, I don't even know why we're here. Let's get some food and get out of town. I mean, this is why we're even here, in a sense. Jesus is, is foregoing his meal, and yet he is ministering the gospel to this lady. So here he is. Other people have labored. Guys, they put forth the effort. You put forth no effort. But I'm going to let you put forth some effort. I'm going to let you enter into their labors. It, do you, are you seeing this, the very love and kindness of Jesus? Why? We don't deserve any bit of this. And yet he does this. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. Verse 39 would simply teach us that your testimony is a big deal. And you might even say this, I don't even know how to share the gospel. I, I, Jeremy, I haven't had the 13-week soul winning course. I'd say, well, uh, neither did the demoniac of Gadara, and he, he went and told cities. And um, at this point, here's this woman sharing just with these people as much as she knows, and God used it. Share your testimony. Make sure you're clear in it. Don't glorify sin in it. As you give your testimony to people, but you have to admit sin, and you have to talk about your sin, and you have to talk about what he did for you, and you're really... Your testimony should be the very gospel. It should be clear in the gospel. And I think we should learn how to clearly give that and, and practice even maybe better saying things and how to better present the gospel in your testimony. But sure enough, they hear this and, and they told me ever I, at, at all that ever I did. In verse 39, verse 40, then when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days. <laughs> Again, that's not their plan. What? I mean, let's get some food and get out of town. Man, what's he doing talking to that woman, you know? What is he talking about this, you know, this will and the work? Oh, 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 okay. And then he, he lift up your eyes and look on the fields. You know, what is he? What? No, they're not. Oh, the Samaritan. I mean, everything is, they're just learning and growing, and God is teaching them through Christ. And at this point, you know, okay, well, now we've done our work. Let's leave. And no, but the Samaritans, will you stay longer? <clears throat> and Jesus does. Two days. Have any of you ever taken a mission trip ever? 
Can I encourage you, save your money, don't go to, don't go to Disney, but take a mission trip. I mean, now it's a little harder, but maybe we need to do domestic ones, you know what I mean? But you think about this for a minute, and, and as you ever spend time on a mission field anywhere, you know what it does to your heart? It changes it. I mean, it, it's powerful. Many of you, maybe in your life you can look back and you can think about those opportunities that you did and you, you held these VBSs maybe for kids or you did something. You were part of some kind of a mission trip and it, and it affected you. And what do you think is going on here? here? Here's the very plan of God, how these men's hearts are being affected, affected by this ministry as they're there with people who they normally, naturally despise. And they're seeing Christ love them. And verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. They heard Jesus himself. And they said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. (laughs) The Jewish people thought he's the Savior of the Jews. They had a very narrow mind and sight. And the clarity is this, no, he's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's a savior of the world. Now, we know this. Remember, as Paul Harvey used to say about the rest of the story, we do know this because all we do is read the book of Acts, the historical book of the New Testament, and we read from the very beginning. He says, but, but you shall receive power, and after that the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, and you're going to be witnesses unto me where? In Jerusalem, and then where? Judea, and then where? Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, the world. That's where they, and that's what they did. You could say the disciples, they actually did get it. They did see it. And ultimately, they did do it. What about you and me? Uh, There are people I will meet that you'll never meet. And there are people that you will meet that I will never meet. And God uses us all if we would humble ourselves, make ourselves available, and pursue people with the gospel. We can't save them, but we can lovingly warn them, and we can plead with people, and we can love them by sharing the gospel. I I would hope that even tomorrow, we, we obviously are thinking towards tomorrow in a special way, that we would look to enjoy the fellowship of others. But really the idea is that ultimately that there would be people who would come to Christ even, that, that we would see people saved, that we would, we would look this way, we would live this way. May God help us do that. Do you get it? Widen to harvest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word and the example of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the very love of God shown clearly through your Son. And God, I would ask, would you make us more like Christ? Knowing that Jesus came for the purpose of seeking and saving those who are lost. Lord, you tell us in your word, Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And dear God, the world is condemned already, and I would ask, Lord, would you please stir our hearts for greater usefulness specifically with the gospel Lord it seems with even in the culture even now that you will come and you will seems seems very soon it really does but we don't know 
And yet you tell us that you're not slack or slow concerning your promise, as some people would count it, but you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the truth is, Lord, we know because of your timing of holding back and your patience that way, it's that more and more would come to you and come to know you. Please, God, would you use us to spread your word? We use us for the sake of the gospel. We use us to point people and clearly present the gospel to those around us. And God, will you save souls? And God, may we be a part of this. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I hope that this has been a challenge to your soul as you thought about this passage. I wonder, <clears throat> are you actively pursuing lost people? Do you see it? Do you get it? Are you doing it? And I, I, I think of maybe there's someone in this room, and maybe you'd say, Jeremy, I've not even been saved yet, and this concerns me. I, I'm like the woman at the well or the Samaritans before coming to Christ, and I need to be saved. Maybe that's you, and you want me to pray for you today. And you'd say, Jeremy, pray for me. I am not saved yet, not, not yet, and I need you to pray for me. I would love to pray for you. You'd slip up your hand. Jeremy, pray for me. I am not saved, but I know I need to be. Please pray for me. And then I wonder how many of believers would we really be honest with ourselves? Are we pursuing God's will and are we doing God's work? Or are you about your own business? And we've heard these things as we conclude with this time of reflection, this invitational time. I want to invite you to respond to the Lord in your heart as my wife plays. Maybe in your response you should be asking God for forgiveness, for being about your own will. Maybe you live for your work, but we need to be stirred to be about His will and His work, His business, not ours. I think we should naturally ask for wisdom because obviously we do need to eat and we do work and we do all these other things that in one sense we need to do to live. But in the process of all this, our greatest drive should be the very heartbeat of God and of Christ.